Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everybody, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about strength. In my opinion, it takes a lot of strength to be a scientist, mental, emotional, sometimes even physical. Plus, you have to go to school for a very long time, which is a certain kind of strength that I personally don't possess. <laughs> Our first story about strength is from Heather Hamlin. It was recorded in September 2018 at the Criterion Theater in Bar Harbor, Maine. This show was presented in partnership with the Maine Science Festival, and the theme that night was Breaking Boundaries. Okay, so a number of years ago, I was part of a research group that studied American alligators. And so that probably sounds really exciting. But the most exciting part of that for me was being able to work with Lou. So he was the head of the lab. And to say I worshipped him is probably a bit of an understatement. Um, and it wasn't because he was a great scientist. It wasn't just because he was famous in his field. It wasn't because he won the Heinz Award, which is like the Nobel Prize for environmental research. It was really because he was an amazing mentor. And when he said we were family, he really meant it. So he lovingly liked to refer to our group as the innies and the outies. So the innies basically spent all their time in the lab and studied the alligators from like the skin in. And the outies spent all of their time in the field and studied the alligators from like from the skin out. And so I was an innie through and through, a complete lab rat. And although I really appreciated hearing the stories of the outies, it was well outside my comfort zone. I mean, these things, they, they could kill you, right? So, um, and so so people would say, oh, you work with alligators, that must be dangerous. And I'd kind of laugh because by the time I saw them, they, they were in like test tubes, right? And I'm analyzing some part of their blood or something like that. So unless I'm wearing like open-toed shoes or violating some other lab safety protocol, I'm probably going to make it through the day, right? So that's, so that's really, you know, that's good. Um, and so, but this day was a little bit different. So I was part of a research group that we were trying to understand the effects of space shuttle launches on surrounding wildlife. So the Kennedy Space Center is like smack dab in the middle of Merritt Island Wildlife Refuge. And so we were trying to understand if we you know the rocket launches and you know the rocket fuel, et cetera, and all these things that could happen. So 
our mission, right? And so this particular day, so all of a sudden, Lou decided that I would make a good Audi. So they were missing a person. So he kind of went through the lab and he was like, oh, you know, so you can come help us, you know, out in this field research. And in this particular research, we were studying adult alligators. So our mission, as he was explaining it to me, is that we were going to take these barbless grappling hooks, right? So if you're like a robber and you're going on buildings, right? So imagine that. And then they're attached to Kevlar rope, right? And so we have this whole thing, you know, tied up in a bucket. And so we're going to take this and we're going to throw it and we're going to hook an alligator. We're going to pull it onto the land. And then we're going to hold it still while we take blood samples and we're going to let it go. And I'm like... <laughs> What could possibly go wrong? Of course, yeah. You know, but it's an opportunity for me to spend time with Lou, so I said, yeah, so certainly I'll do this thing. So our team consisted of Lou and Matt, his grown son, his adult son, who'd done many of these before and was clearly a really competent Audi, um, and Russ, who was our NASA collaborator, who was in charge of all of the field expeditions that we did and was, by all accounts, fearless. So even though this seemed kind of dangerous, I was really excited to be a part of this really competent crew, right? And so I listened really intently to, to everything they were telling me and everything that was going to happen because I wanted to make sure where am I going to basically be able to be the most help. I was like, I'm really good at bleeding, you know, bleeding the alligators. So I'm just trying to figure out, okay, where can I be helpful, you know, in, in this group. But the whole time I'm thinking, how on earth are these guys going to wrangle an alligator? I mean, an adult male alligator is like 10 or 11 feet, five or 600 pounds. And all these guys are big, but they are not alligator big, right? So I'm like, all right, well, it'd be really interesting to see what happens. So, and what we were doing on that particular day was something called running ditches, which is about as glamorous as it sounds. And so Merritt Island is covered in all these dirt roads so that it's, it's a high security area so that, you know, vehicles can access basically all the landmass. And all along these dirt roads are tons of these really deep and wide ditches. And so we were running these ditches to find alligators to take samples from. And so we're driving along in the truck and the very first stop of the day, we look across this big ditch and on the other side, there are five or six maybe smaller adults and then one huge alligator. As soon as the truck doors open, the alligators just take off into the water. So I grab the bucket with the, you know, the grappling hook and the Kevlar rope thinking, you know, I'll carry this for someone. So I get out of the truck and I stand there and within seconds, I'm all by myself. Like the guys have taken off in either direction. I can't see them anymore. They're in the brush somewhere, presumably trying to find, maybe predict where these alligators went. And I was like, okay, there must be some kind of competition. Who's going to catch it first? So I stood there and I'm like, well, the blood sample stuff is in the truck. So I guess I'll just kind of wait here until they come back and then I'll be helpful, right? In the meantime, I'm just going to hang here. So I'm standing there and I'm looking at the water and all of a sudden I see like, like this giant alligator head like 20 feet from me just kind of pops up and I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God, right, presumably that's that big one, you know, that was on, that was on the, that everybody was trying to catch. So I'm like, guys, guys, you know, they can hear me. And I'm like, I see it, it's right in front of me. And I'm like super excited. And I hear Russ from off in the distance and he says, well, catch it. Like, you idiot, what are you, what are you yelling to me for? And I, I waited for a second, so I was expecting to hear like, you know, like thunder of feet or the, or the snapping of branches or any indication that he was just kidding and that they were on their way back to help me. And I know Lou heard it, nothing, complete silence. And then it occurred to me, they actually expect me to catch this thing. And then I thought about it more and I'm like, Lou is really smart. 
this much meat, I can catch this thing. I'm like, I'm gonna catch me a gator. So I grab my bucket, you know, and I walk over and I take my grappling hook and I'm like, okay, I had paid attention, right? I had really paid attention to what they told me to do. So I took this thing and I, you know, swung it like I was supposed to and tried to hook it right where I was supposed to. And as soon as it hit the water, the alligator went down. So I pulled it back, I pulled it back and I threw it at about the same place it was because I was thinking if that whole group of people didn't make this thing move, I certainly wasn't. So threw this thing and I kind of felt, it felt like a little bit of a tug. So I just pulled back for all I was worth. And as soon as I did that, the rope just starts flying out of my bucket. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. So I have these like leather gloves on and I'm gripping as hard as I can. It's like I am not even there. And the rope is just flying out of my bucket. And I can tell that the rope, where it is in the water, isn't moving its position, and so the alligator is death rolling, right? So it's death rolling under the water, and it's just wrapping itself in this rope. And so as it slows down a little, I try and wrap my hand around it so I can pull something back. Um, and then I just hold on and hope for the best. And by the time it stopped, it was a little closer to the water than I was comfortable with. So I kind of grabbed and I you know, dug in and went back up onto the land as far as I could until I really couldn't move anymore. But I, I was pretty impressed with the kind of headway I made. So then I, yelled, I was like, Russ, I got it. And all of a sudden I hear, holy cow, except it wasn't cow. And then, and then all of a sudden I hear all the, like the sounds and things that I was expecting before. So I hear like, you know, the thunder of feet and just crashing from both directions and they came up and, and then everybody grabs the rope, right? And it took four of us pulling as hard as we could. Now I really understand why they needed four, um, to pull this thing up, right? And as it's coming up, you can start to see it break the water and then you can start to see how big it is. And it was huge. So this was a 10 foot alligator. And Matt, the, you know, the guy, the, one of the ones that was helping us, uh, loose was like, nice. And I'm like, yeah, I did that. Whatever, you know, <laughs> you know, it's fine. Um, and so we pull it up and then <laughs> Russ jumps on it and clamps its jaws shut so that you know someone can duct tape it then we bring it up onto the land so we're bringing it up and so I'm really excited and we're gonna get to bleed this like right and so then Russ starts to stand up he's like all right hop on keep this thing stable while I go get the uh, the supplies and I'm like oh I look behind me and there's nobody there and I'm like he was talking to me I'm like oh, okay and I was like well, why me and then he was like well it's your gator and I'm like yeah it's my gator. So I walk over and I'm like, okay, so the protocol with what you're supposed to do to maintain its position, right, and to keep it stable, is you're supposed to straddle it, which I did. So you straddle its back and then you take its feet and you put it over your heels. So you're kind of like this, right, and your heels up in the air. And so you take that and you put its foot over yours on both feet. And I was amazed at how heavy their feet was when I was doing this. And then you're supposed to take your hands and cover its eyes, right? So I'm laying there with its feet up and I've got, you know, I'm stretched out across this. I can feel it's like kind of thick, bumpy skin on my belly, and so I'm covering its eyes, and I'm laying there, and I'm like, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, and then all of a sudden, I feel it kind of lift up a little and then jump forward, and I'm like, this wasn't the protocol, and so then I look back, and apparently the protocol only works if your feet are bigger than their feet, and my feet were not bigger than their feet, so what it was, it was able to get its toes in a little bit, right, and kind of push itself forward. And I was like, okay. I was like, Russ? And he's like, yeah. He's not that far from me. And I was like, it's moving. And like, we're making bunny hops all the way to the water, right? And so I'm like, it's moving toward the water. And so he looks over at me and he said, you're gonna have to think heavy. And so, I look over at Lou and he's just smiling, prepping his stuff, not moving. And I was like, 
okay, I see how this is. All right, game on. So I think to myself, okay, I was like, towel, towel. Somebody throw me a towel. So they throw me a towel. And I put it over the alligator's eyes, and I rear back, and I basically reach up on its feet, right? As much as I can, I'm pulling on them as hard as I can. And I'm standing there, just really sitting there in this really awkward position for what felt like forever until the guys to come and sample, right? I was sure the whole time the alligator was just gonna like turn and I, I would like squish, right? Um, but that didn't happen. It didn't move and they got their sample. And so back in the truck and actually many times since then, I've really thought about what it was that made me think that I couldn't do it and why someone else's opinions of what I can and can't do were so much more powerful than my own. And in fact, what could happen when that's reversed? What if someone doesn't have faith in your ability? So that was really a watershed moment for me in understanding what my limits are. And I really think from that point on, I've been relatively fearless, not only in science, but in other aspects of my life. And now that I'm a mentor to my own students, my own graduate students, my, I think my greatest aspiration is really teaching them how to think heavy. That was Heather Hamlin. Heather earned her master's in marine bioresources from the University of Maine before working as a senior biologist at the Moat Marine Laboratory in Sarasota, Florida, and earning her PhD from the University of Florida in 2007. She then worked as a postdoctoral scholar at that same institution, studying the effects of environmental pollutants on the endocrine system of aquatic animals. In 2011, she returned to the University of Maine's School of Marine Sciences, where she is an associate professor. And her current resource seeks to understand how human-induced changes in the environment can affect the reproduction and development of aquatic animals. Before we continue with our next story today, I just want to note, since June is Pride Month, that while we're talking about strength this week, we're also thinking in particular right now of the strength that is required of many scientists who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer. According to some stats, which you can find on the 500 Queer Scientists website, LGBTQ STEM students and faculty experience higher rates of exclusion, harassment, and assault than their straight counterparts. Many are subject to discrimination because of their sexuality or gender, and this discrimination is in fact still legal in 28 states. Many are working in environments where they can't be out and be themselves, as unfortunately a lot of homophobic attitudes are still pervasive in many scientific communities. Just last year, a study at Montana State University found that students from sexual minorities leave science, technology, engineering, and math degrees at higher rates than their heterosexual classmates, and that's regardless of aptitude or enthusiasm. And I'm no scientist, but it's not hard to make the connection here. We're losing talented and passionate future scientists because of these toxic environments that persist in many areas of science, and I'm not okay with that. So today I'm thinking of all the folks who are currently out there struggling in these environments. I'm thinking of those who have struggled to pursue their scientific dreams while being thwarted by homophobic teachers or professors or classmates or colleagues or supervisors, or even just teachers, professors, classmates, colleagues, supervisors who are unsympathetic. I'm thinking of those who have had to let go of their scientific dreams because they had to make the best choice for themselves and their sanity and leave these toxic environments. I'm thinking of everybody out there who just wants to go to work or school and focus on science all day, but 
they can't because they also have to think about protecting themselves from discrimination or harassment or assault, all of which is very real. (laughs) Just check out our back catalog for some evidence. To me, the dream of becoming a scientist is one of the purest dreams I can think of. It's about wanting to learn and discover and contribute to the world and make it a better place. And it bums me out that folks with dreams that beautiful are being stifled by small minds and cruelty when we could all be benefiting from their powerful work. It feels very pointless and sad and stupid to me. So this is why it's so important to me to share stories from LGBTQ scientists and other LGBTQ storytellers, uh, which, by the way, we'll be sharing many of these from our back catalog on our Twitter account this week if you follow us there. So I'm going to step down off my soapbox now. But if you want to learn more about this situation, I highly recommend checking out 500queerscientists.com. They're a great resource. And check out our Twitter account for more stories this week. Our next story today is from Daniel Simpson. It was recorded in July 2018 at the 519 in Toronto, Ontario. The theme that night was LGBTQ in STEM. Of course we've got diversity. Two of the guys who spoke yesterday were from Quebec. It's a bold piece of rhetorical ground to stake out as a position in a discussion professionally about representation. Because I was somewhere in Canada, there were moose, I don't know where I was. And it was cold, and we were drinking cheap red wine, and it was a statistics conference, because that's what I do. And we were having the conversation that everyone's having at the moment, the conversation that, for some reason, when a group of men stand together to select a group of people to speak, they somehow forget that women exist. And that's bad. (laughs) Quite bad. And it didn't help by somebody staking out the ground that some men from Quebec were good enough. And so you think, well, okay, well, we've, had, we've, we've hit the low point of the conversation, now starts the learning. No. Because no. The, the, the next thing he said was, and we've got Dan, he's gay. And I am, 100%. Sweet, congratulations. <laughs> also didn't talk at the conference, so sort of a side issue. And I was annoyed, a little bit annoyed. Um, I didn't appreciate being used to somebody's human diversity shield. And so I looked at this guy, put down my coffee mug of wine, and hissed, just because I suck cock doesn't mean I'm diverse. (laughs) And it doesn't. I'm give or take the second least diverse person in any room. I'm a cisgendered white man. I've got all the privilege. That I'm gay just makes me slightly less annoying, but (laughs) only slightly. So I was angry, but I wasn't angry about the thing I should have been angry about. I mean, I was standing, well, standing, sitting. I was drinking. I don't know what I was doing. I was prone. I was was prone by a fire. And I, I, I was in a professional context, and some middle-aged straight guy just decided to declare to the room that I was gay, which is not even surprising. It's not even surprising. It happens constantly. Constantly. Conferences, 
dinners, hallways, work events, my last two fucking job interviews, somebody's going to tell me that I'm gay. Well, tell me, I already know. Tell everybody else <laughs> that I'm gay. Okay, and you just get used to it. There's no GDPR opt-out on straight people. They're fucking obsessed with telling everyone your identity. And I don't care anymore. I'm very out at work. I'm, you know, I could explode into a glitter bomb and I'd be less out at work. But at some point, I did care. Because I remember the first time it happened to me. I was 20. It was 2005. I had just started my PhD. I'm from Australia. I'm from a small town in Australia. They make aluminium and apparently at least one gay, but not anymore. <laughs> we don't make, we're not made out of aluminium. And I was at this conference, and it was somewhere not that far, relatively speaking, from where I grew up, in a place, a small town that didn't make aluminium. It made an army base, so another safe space. <laughs> and I'd never been to a conference before. I knew nothing. I knew no one. I was a deeply closeted, 20-year-old Catholic self-loathing guy. And I did what you had to do. I went out, I met people. I went to a kegger. We had a kegger, because that's what conferences happen in Australia. <laughs> they put kegs of beer in wheelie bins and took them to events. <laughs> this was the tropics. The beer was warm. <sighs> but anyway, not the point. Went to this kegger, and it was great fun. Met a bunch of people, it was wonderful. Next morning, I went to lunch, stumbled out of a session, totally not a hangover, 100% on top of this, because I didn't really drink then, because I was a deeply closeted gay guy. And you don't drink when you're deeply closeted, because shit leaks out. <laughs> and leakage is the enemy of the closet. <laughs> and so, I went and I sat down and I said hi to the people I'd been talking to all night. And there were people I didn't know there as well. And this girl said, oh, hi, everyone. This is Dan. Dan's from QUT and he's gay. And I fucking died. <laughs> I died. It was the worst case scenario because it was everything I didn't want to happen. And I did what you do. <laughs> Except not that because that gives it away. <laughs> I was cool with it. I made my face look like I hadn't heard what they were talking about the night before. I made my face look like I couldn't see them when she told them and their feelings. And I sat through that lunch and I smiled and I laughed and I talked about maths. And then I got the fuck out of there and did my best to never see them again. That put me back into the closet for so long because I was sure I could never be out at work. Okay, flash forward to a more recent time, a couple of weeks after the thing with the moose and the wine and the diversity shield. We, I was somewhere and there was a phone call. I was invited to join a teleconference because they needed more guys. It's a thing that's never, ever, ever happened in the whole history of STEM. There's never been a meeting where they're like, shit, we need more guys. Can we find them? But this was one of those things because it was, it was a meeting about women. It was a meeting about safety. It was a meeting about problems that had been happening in the community with sexual assault at conferences and trying to work out what we could do about it. And so I said, sure, I'm going to spend some time on that. I can spend an evening trying to solve these problems. Um, and so I 
signed on. It was, I don't know, 11 o'clock at night because I was in Australia and it's a terrible time zone. And I just sat there and we talked and good things happened, very positive things came out of it. And then eventually, it happened. Someone on the line said, Dan, you're gay. What's it like being a gay in statistics? A gay. Mm. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do. Because that wasn't why I was on the phone call. I was on the phone call because I was a bloke. I wasn't on the phone call because I was a gay. It's a different part of my identity. And more than that, it wasn't the fucking topic. Misogyny and homophobia are sisters. They're not twins. <laughs> okay? So to a large extent, my experience as a gay in statistics was not massively relevant to the conversation we were having. So I did what I always do when I panic when straight people ask me things. I just said some shit and hoped it would go away. And it did, and it did, and good things happened in the end. But I've been thinking about that since, because no one had ever asked. I never really thought about what it is. I just put my head down and go forward. And I, I don't know how to answer the question, because I don't know how to tell a bunch of people that I'm scared when I meet new statisticians. So I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know how to tell them that I think I'm going to die when I'm waiting for a conference dinner because I'm so nervous. I don't know how to tell them that I fucking lie and say that I am devastatingly seasick on votes. Devastatingly seasick on votes so that I never have to be trapped with my colleagues on a boat, which is an issue that comes up. I don't know how to tell them what it feels like when I see some young guy who I know is gay smooth himself out because he's not sure about his company. I don't know how to explain what it feels like when I see somebody seeing me do the same thing. I don't know how to explain that years, years after that last story, years, and I finally found, I don't know, what, the courage or the boredom or the whatever to finally put some of my identity into the way that I communicated science, that immediately as I got off the stage, a croaking chorus of middle-aged white men came up to me and told me I was doing it wrong. I don't know how to explain to somebody who hasn't fucking done it what it's like to give an invited talk at a conference and have it go great, have it go great, and then spend the two hours on the train home, just twice as long as I talked for, having some senior professor tell me how to do it again but straight, like I wasn't in the closet for 24 years, like I don't fucking know how to lie. I don't know how to explain this stuff. I don't know how to explain that I'm the wrong person to ask this question to. Because when I was 24 and I finally started coming out, I didn't come out at work. I'm not an idiot. I pushed down every... I had ambition. I pushed down everything that I thought was too faggy. I pushed down my hope. I pushed down my humor. I pushed down my empathy. I pushed down my joy and my love so that I could maybe do my job. Well, you know what? That works. Leaning on your other privilege works great. By the time I was 31, I had a job offer as a full professor at a decent university in England. 
and I got it the bad way, because that hurts. But not me, I was dead inside years before. That hurt other people. Because do you know what it's like to stand there and interact with other people, with junior people, with marginal people, with vulnerable people, as somebody who is just tamping down all of their humanity so they can be better at fucking statistics? Do you know what that's like? I wasn't a monster, but I was an absolute raging dickhead. And so many people had to survive interactions with me. How do I explain what that feels like? I don't, I don't know. And how do, how do I explain that I actually have a really good answer to the question? I know what it's like to be a gay in statistics, but I don't want to give it because it's too, it's too clean. It's too clean for straight people. It's too pat, it's too nice. I don't know how to tell them that to be gay in statistics is to not be supposed to be there. There's a reason we're constantly being outed. It's because they're fucking shocked that there's a gay. No one is expecting it. Statistics is a place for middle-aged, straight, white men and people who are willing to pretend to be them. The reason why those professors, those men would come up to me after I tried to just be myself and tell me how to do it again but straighter is that it didn't even occur to them that there were more than one experience and more than one way to tell a story, to express yourself, to communicate facts, to communicate science. It never occurred to them. And how, how, do, I, how do I tell people that I don't even have any hope left? Because I know the gatekeepers in my community, and I know the next round of gatekeepers in my community, and I know the fucking round after that. And I know that we are not a diverse set of people. I know that these experiences and these opinions are not going to arrive from somewhere. How, how, do, how do I explain that I just don't know what to do? That was Daniel Simpson. Dan is an Australian statistician who got his PhD in 2009 and almost immediately left the country. Since then, he has worked in Sweden, Norway, Finland, and the UK. He is currently in the Department of Statistical Sciences at the University of Toronto. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Nissa Greenberg, Skylar Bear, Jesse Hildebrand, and Misha Gajewski. The podcast is edited by Senior Podcast Editor Zoe Saunders, with help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the 519 and the Criterion Theater for hosting these shows and to all the scientists out there staying strong under difficult circumstances. Thank you for listening. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. 
See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs> 